<clears throat> well, good morning. I want to welcome each one of you in the precious name of Jesus. It's good to be with you again here at the Word of Hope Congregation. Um, I really appreciate you as a church and as individuals. I just want to bless you in the work that you carry on here. I want to invite you to the book of Gospel of Matthew, chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18, and I'll be looking at the entirety of this chapter, all uh, 35 verses, Lord willing. Matthew 18, I would say, is a fairly familiar passage to most of us, different portions of it. And um, I think there's probably been quite a bit taught out of this chapter to of, of different portions, uh, and especially... Um, we think of the portion of verses 15 through uh, 20 as something we think about in our relations to each other. And of course, the end on forgiveness, we certainly understand is very valuable. But I, a while ago, I studied this chapter in its entirety and was blessed with how as we bring the whole package together and how they interrelate with one another. And hoping to share that with you, and I also realize that I'm biting a bit off this morning for the time allotted to me. So, Lord willing, I can uh, share what's on my heart and what's in this chapter, I, what I feel the Lord is teaching us without uh, it becoming burdensome in time. So we'll start right in. And uh, look at the first four verses. At the same time came the disciples unto Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus called a little child unto him, and set him in the midst of them, and said, Verily I say unto you, Except ye be converted, and become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. And whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is greatest in the kingdom of heaven." the master teacher was given a question about how to become great in his kingdom. And the master teacher in his wisdom used a powerful uh, object lesson by bringing a little child that may have been in the crowd or nearby. And he, he set them in the middle of this discussion. Maybe there was uh, disciples. Maybe there were um, uh, wise men. Maybe there were people who were important or wealthy. We don't know exactly what this crowd looked like, but they all could understand the simplicity of a child, the innocence of a child, and it's called a little child. Um, seems quite young, quite uh, tender, and it gives that picture of, of trusting innocence, and it drove the point home to these men about how to become great in fact, how to enter into the kingdom, that the only way to enter this kingdom is to become as this little child. But he starts with more than just a child. He says, a need to happen, a heart change, except you be converted, except you have that heart change, except you believe on me, except you put your trust in Jesus Christ, except you understand that you have a problem, a sin problem, and turn from it, no longer trusting in your own goodness, in your own uh, wealth, in your own ability, 
to get yourself out, but understand that as a little child is completely dependent upon his parents, so you will become completely dependent upon Jesus Christ. The need of humility, the need of total trust in Jesus Christ as the prerequisite to enter into the kingdom. So who are these little ones? Um, I think of, uh, you know, when a little child dies uh, before the age of accountability, do we not think of them as a little one, as someone safe in the arms of Jesus, innocent? But we know Jesus is going beyond that. He's talking about those of us and those who have placed their trust in Jesus Christ, who understood that they are not enough and have given themselves to Jesus, whether young or old. That can include everyone in this room here this morning. Are you a little one of Jesus Christ? Have you placed your trust in him? Do you believe in him? Is that where your confidence is in, not in your own strength, your own ability, or in, or in the ability of this world, or, or technology, or whatever, wealth? But is it in Jesus Christ? Have you placed your trust completely in him? It is completely necessary, not possible to enter into the kingdom without that kind of trust, that kind of faith, belief in Jesus Christ. Verses 5 through 9, we're going to be look, switching from who is great in the kingdom of heaven, heaven switching into how, what it means when we relate to a little one, the relations to little one, both good and bad. Verse 5, he starts out, Whoso sh shall receive one such little child of my name receiveth me. The, the, the thought of, of relating to maybe an innocent child, maybe a young believer, or maybe any believer, that when we, we bless them, we enter into, we bring them into our, we're being a blessing to them. And he says, when you do that, when you're encouraging the little ones, the young Christians, you're blessing them, or any believer on me, you're doing it as if I was there, as if this person was Jesus, as it is done unto me, Jesus Christ, you're receiving me. I don't know, we can quickly read over that, but I believe Jesus meant exactly what he said, and I believe that. The verses following show the seriousness when it goes the other way. He says, in the contrast, verse 6, but, he puts the word but in there, whoso shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me. It were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and that he were drowned in the depths of the sea. And I think probably most of us know that verse as one of the more shocking verses in the Bible. Uh, the thought of having a heavy stone tied around your neck that you couldn't be free and you'd be dropped into the ocean at a mile deep is a horrifying thought. Uh, that utter con lack of control and, and, and certain death that that would cause. And Jesus used, I think he wanted to, to, to bring a point about to grab our attention about the seriousness of causing others to sin. He says, but whoso shall offend, verse 6, that could be translated, cause to sin, but whoso shall cause to sin one of these little ones which believeth in me. 
So what do you think uh, that such a, um, such a severe punishment, we have to understand, is when someone leads another into sin and the seriousness of that. What are, what are some examples of these types of offense? How can that happen? How can we become a, who or how can we be an offender causing others to sin? I'm going to remember that. Let's take a young person who, who um, is believing in Jesus. Maybe they're tender in the faith. And I think we probably, most of us who've lived a little while, can, can maybe know of situations where someone in their young age would have believed in Jesus but something caused them to sin. Someone caused them to sin. And now, years later, they're far from God. They're no, they no longer believe in Jesus. And Jesus is saying if the, the, the person that started that and led that young little one into that sin is in serious um, trouble with the Father. I thought of a few situations, thought of us as fathers and mothers have a responsibility to, to receive little ones, to lead them to the Father. And if fathers and mothers are bitter and angry and living in sin themselves, what that does to their children is, is very serious. Of course, we think of moral failure and leading others into sin through filthy material or, or um, bad ideas, um, immoral actions toward the innocent as something that we often think of as very serious, and it is, um, all those types of actions. And, and we certainly don't want to minimize that, but I think the majority of us, I hope, are never even very close to being guilty of anything like that. But we can lead others to sin in much more mild ways. Um, what type of practices do we encourage? Um, how do we drive? What, what, are we, what, for example, are we leaving? Because someone is following me. And someone is watching how I live. And someone is kind of gauging their actions according to my actions. And it's sobering. To think about that, and I know I, I tremble to know that I am far from perfect. Sometimes in this can be a leading into sin, but it can also be a leading into discouragement in how we relate to each other, in how we, um, if we're kind or unkind, if we're unselfish or selfish, if we are um, if we keep our, our anger in check when we feel angry or if we lose our temper. And if we, as I think of in the context as a parent especially, are unkind, we're selfish, we're angry, what does that do to those around us? Or if of, of anybody, you're relating to someone, how do you make the people feel that are around you? The little ones in your presence. Are you encouraging or are you discouraging? Are you giving them life and, and saying, you know, 
you can do this. You can follow the Lord. And, and giving them a, a desire to, to be a, a believer in Jesus. Are you receiving them? Or are you causing them to feel like quitting? I don't think it's worth it. I don't want to live the Christian life anymore. I just can't go on. Anyhow, there's just some thoughts, and we can't go real deep in this chapter. Brother Matt could split this apart in about, uh, any of us, in about eight, uh, five or six sermons, I think. So we have to just kind of keep skimming here. But he goes on and he says, understand the seriousness of it. And he says, understand that these things are going to happen. Woe unto the world because of offenses, for it must be that offenses come. It's, it is happening. But woe to that man by whom the offense come. Wherefore, if thy hand or thy foot offend thee, cut them off and cast them from thee. It is better for thee to enter to life, halt or maimed, having then two hands or two feet to be cast into everlasting fire. And if thine eye offend thee, pluck it out, cast it from thee. It is better for thee to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire. And he's just challenging that you, me, to deal with sin in our lives. Why? Because if you don't deal with sin in your life, you will become an offender, one way or the other. You will somehow cause others to sin, and it's really serious. So we need to deal with sin in my life. Don't allow it to go on because of what it does to yourself and what it would do to those around you and the wrath of God that you will be living under if you allow that sin. Now, I want to think briefly. I tried to put this chapter into some pictures in my mind and one that came to mind was the cycle of sin how sin since the garden of eden when adam and eve fell has continued in cycles when people fall they sin and that sin affects others and since since we're all born of the sin nature but when we think of offenses is when i sin and i commit a sin or cause others to sin especially in the in the uh um predator type victim let's say in sexual sin or or in abuse how that when someone has been sinned against how that impacts them and then tragically without intervention by god or help that the cycle of sin tends to continue and that that victims will tend to become offenders if Things follow their natural course. As we think about that, that through the thousands of years of sin in this wicked world, how older people sinned against younger people who grew up who sinned against others and who sinned and sinned. And that's the world we lived in. Jesus said, this is the reality. That offenses must come. They're here. And I thought about that cycle, just going and going, and how God, looking down on this sinful earth, and saw the trap of sin that it caught all of his dear creation. And that brings us into that next verse and what God did about it. In verses 10 to 14, he says, Take heed that you despise not one of these little ones, for I say unto you that in heaven there are angels to always behold the face of my Father which is in heaven. For the Son of Man is come to save that which was lost. We bring a different um, feeling into this. We bring an intervention into this kind of sad picture of sin and abuse and uh, um, God's wrath and God looking down 
and loving. Verse 10 is kind of that a little glimpse into the middle of this chapter that is so special to me. I, I call it a glimpse because I don't really understand what all it pertains. But at the beginning of the chapter, we talked about the little ones, which I believe would, could, would and could include all of us. We often think of it in the context of innocent children, and I think that's very fair and true, but I think it could be expanded beyond that. Anyone who believes and trusts in Jesus Christ would have angels that have been given special charge. They're angels. An angel given a responsibility to a specific person or persons. I don't know how God does all of that. But he says, they're angels. The little ones, angels. So just to have a specific angel given to be in charge over little one or ones is pretty amazing. But Jesus said, you have to understand what kind of angels these are. These angels are very special in that they have a, have a, a kind of like a special privilege. They have, a, they have an in with the Father. You know, I don't understand how heaven works and how everything is, but he says they always behold the face of the Father. They always have an opportunity to, to um, bring their request to the Father. What all did Jesus mean? I'm not sure, but it is an amazing thought. The, the love, the connection, the communion of God with His people is amazing. And then it brings us down into the, the, the desire of Jesus Christ, speaking of Himself, to come and save that which was lost. For the Son of Man is come. This is His purpose, not to destroy the world, not to come and see the sinfulness and the wickedness which He did see and condemned. He didn't come to destroy it, but he came to save it. He came to seek and to save those with the lost sheep, his sheep who had strayed afar away. How think you if a man have a hundred sheep, and one of them goes astray, doth he not leave the ninety and nine, and goeth into the mountains, and seeketh that which is gone astray? And if so be that he find it, verily I say unto you, he rejoices more of that sheep than of the ninety and nine which went not astray. Even so it is not the will of, a, of your father, which is in heaven, that one of these little ones should perish. It is not, I think we can say it, the authority of God, that it be the will of God that one of you in this room would perish. But that his offer of eternal life is, is going forth. In fact, it's more than an offer. He is seeking, he's looking, he's, he's longing for, he's looking for those who have gone astray, who are no longer in his sheepfold, in his presence. <clears throat> so I want to think a little bit about the cycle of sin and the reality of, of the, the world that we live in and how offenses do happen, how people do become sinned against. When I think about God's desire that it would not happen, God's desire that, so we, 
In this chapter, we see the, the awfulness of, a, of an offender. But if I believe, if we accurately understand this cycle of sin, that I don't know if it's accurate to say all offenders, but I think it's accurate to say that all offenders were an innocent child at some time. You take the worst criminal, you take Hitler, was an innocent child at one point in his life. Stalin, at one point, was a little boy running around in diapers or whatever they put on him back then. And I believe that the love of the Father is that, that all would never become that offender. And that God desires to break the cycle, to break the cycle of sin, to stop it in its tracks. And how did he accomplish that? How did the son came? He came and he offered himself that perfect blood sacrifice. He provided a way so that God in his wrath against sin would have an opportunity also to extend forgiveness through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And when we receive the forgiveness that is extended through the love of God, that forgiveness offered through the blood of Jesus is the only thing that can stop the ugly cycle of sin in its tracks. Without it, without that intervention of God through Jesus into the miserable cycle of this sinful world, it would have continued on in its miserable state. Innocent children being offended against, growing up to become offenders who offend again and over and over again. But when God intervenes and brings forgiveness down into this wicked and awful situation, he stops the cycle. And I trust that there are many here that could testify this morning that the cycle has been stopped by the power of God in your life. That you, who were once in sins and trespasses, no longer need to be not because of your own goodness or your own ability, but because you knew that Jesus Christ found you, that lost sheep wandering in the wilderness, and intervened in your life and brought the power of forgiveness to bring transformation. So that now, instead of being a, an offender that brings sin, continued sin into people around you, you can be a blessing, a little one that blesses others that welcomes and encourages, and we stop that cycle. That is the love of God. Now I want you to kind of hold on to that because I believe this part of the chapter who speaks of God's intervention into sinful mankind also relates to the last half of the chapter. Um, because now all of a sudden it switches. It switches from God's dealing, and he switches and he turns to the people standing. He says, moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee. Go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If thy brother trespass against thee. So if we go back to verse 6, it says, But whoso shall offend. Verse 15. If thy brother shall trespass. Those are two different Greek words. Verse 6 is skanda. Scandal, scandalized though, I didn't get that right, but the idea there in Greek is to entrap, to trip up, to entice to sin, to make offend. So the, the verse 6 is an intentional causing to stumble. 
The trespass in verse 15 is hamartano, means to miss the mark, to err. There is sin involved, can be, can be moral sin involved. There's uh, the idea of faults or offenses and sin, a trespass, a mistake. So make no mistake, there is a, a sense of wrongdoing, but not necessarily intentional wickedness. I believe there's a very clear um, difference in the type of offense here, although it's still an offense. I think that one of the, the first things I want to say is that think I'm right on this and I would be very open to to uh, correction if somebody um, wants to raise their hand and say it just do it but I feel like when let's let's take sexual abuse is happening uh, you know that that awful situation I don't feel like the teachings from Matthew 15 through 19 apply to that situation I believe if that is happening, there needs to be a, an intervention, um, responsible parties getting involved, and protection to the victim. You don't send a victim to their abuser to practice Matthew 15 to 20. You don't tell them, well, you need to go rebuke them. That's where I feel the difference is of the way you retreat it. This is talking about misunderstandings and sin between, between brethren of a, of a slightly different nature. But again, I'm open to correction on that. This, we often think of sin as these big bad things that can happen, you know, sexual abuse, um, physical abuse, all these very bad things. But reality is that most of the, of Christian interaction doesn't. That's not what's happening. Rather, it's little disagreements, small offenses, misunderstandings, yes, sin against each other. Really, it's 99% of our normal problems that are happening within the brotherhood. Does it happen? Will it happen? Can it be stopped? No, I don't think so. I think offenses of these types will come and will continue to come where I say something, I do something to offend you, and I know I have. And what, what do you do with that? How do you relate to that? And Jesus is giving instructions. He says you need to do something. He said the first thing you need to do is you need to go to that brother or sister alone. And your goal here is to restore the relationship. Yes, you're going to go tell him or her how you were offended. How they, what they said or did that offended you, that you felt wronged. I was convicted as I read this because the temptation is not to do that. The temptation when someone offends me can go two ways. One is to just bottle it up like it didn't happen. I think often is to go talk to someone else that is not involved and say, you know what they did to me? And gossip mills hum. And simple problems that could be simply resolved are blown way out of proportion. <coughs> I would like to suggest that many times, a, um, if we would follow Jesus' advice here, 
um, many problems would disappear very, very easily. Either there would be a misunderstanding, maybe the person said something that was they did not mean it as you took it, or there could be a simply, you know, I was wrong. I, I'm sorry, I should not have said that. Will you forgive me? And that could be the end of it. This is such wise, wise advice. Now Jesus goes on, and unfortunately we wish that everything would always go away like it should. But it doesn't always. People don't always act the way they are, and they become stubborn. And Jesus said if this happens, then there needs to be more people involved for um, establishing with two or three, making sure that everything is said, is said in a way that should be, and more people hear it. And finally, it gives opportunity for those who someone is stubbornly erring, that excommunication from the church is a practice that Jesus taught and encouraged. And he finally goes into the law of forgiveness in verses, um, we'll have to continue this first portion Verses 16, I want to read down through. Wherever thy brother should trespass against thee, go and tell his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as a heathen man and a publican. Verily I say unto you, whatsoever he shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatsoever you shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say unto you, that if two or three shall agree on earth as touching anything, what, uh, anything that they shall ask, it shall be done for them of my Father which is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. We can make much of those verses of the authority that Jesus Christ has put into the midst of this body, in the midst of his little ones of the authority that he puts when we agree, when we work together. He gives the authority to the church to deal with problems. Now, I want to think about the first cycle of, of um, sin, that of offenses and sin and how they continue to go on. I th was thinking of a second cycle relating to the second part of this chapter. And that of the cycle of offenses or trespasses of how that happens within a body of people and how you do something to me, and I'm, a, I'm you, you know, it bothers me. I don't agree with what you said or did. And how uh, that continued to continue to go through a cycle where you say something, and if not dealt with properly, that starts festering in my heart. You offended me. Uh, possibly I say something. Or I say something to someone else which makes other people unhappy with what you did. So now all of a sudden it kind of grew. The cycle continues. And then we watch and we understand how that can kind of whirl for a little bit. And generally it kind of tends to cool down as the news gets old. But usually there's a lingering resentment that, that remains, especially in the heart of the offended one. But how if, if the the pattern is to deal with it in other ways, in a natural way, instead of the way Jesus dealt with it, is that this cycle just continues to keep swirling from person to person. And these offenses and, and unhappiness and gossip continue to swirl around 
in human relationships. The reality is we don't get along with each other very well. We're not really happy with each other. But it's the natural way sinful people work who have to be in a group. And that's where I saw the parallels between the first part of the chapter and the last part of the chapter. That is the answer is, in, is finished out in the last part of the chapter, starting at verse um, 21. Jesus, Peter comes to Jesus, and I don't know if the context of what Jesus was saying was too much for him. Maybe Peter was struggling with, a, with somebody, and he wanted an out. Maybe this is a question he had for a long time. He thought, you know, Jesus is the person to ask. Believe in the Jews, there was a, you know, a limit, number seven. If you, somebody defended you seven times, you were free after that. And he asked him, Peter said to him, Lord, how often shall I for, my brother sin against me and I forgive him till seven times? You ever do that? You ask someone a question, you kind of give them the answer in your question. <laughs> That's what you want to hear, till seven times. Jesus said to him, I say unto thee until seven times, not, say not unto thee until seven times, but until seventy times seven. Go back to Luke 17 and see a comparable to that same principle. Jesus blows Peter out of the water. He's speechless. We don't hear him saying anything after that. I believe he... How do you fathom that? And I don't think we're supposed to fathom. I don't think he meant start counting. All right, we're now at number 325. I think we're going to make it to 490. I don't think that's what he meant. I believe he meant, no, it's not about counting. It's not about getting to a limit. My forgiveness that I'm going to teach is much deeper than that and greater than that. I'm going to bring you a new thought, a better way than what you have been used to. Oh, I think a little bit about repeating faults or besetting sins or idiosyncrasies of just how people are. Now, if you don't have this happen and you're a single person here, get married. You understand that you will learn to know your partner much deeper than you did before. And one of the ways you'll learn to know them is they will do things a certain way. And some of those things will annoy you. I, we were, it's funny, you get a couple married people around that are willing to talk frankly about their partners. It can get it quite amusing. And usually, well, you know, they, they eat their ice cream this way. They smack their lips this way. And they put the toilet paper on the roll that way. And it's nothing is necessarily sin. But it becomes, can become annoying depending how you were raised and depending upon what type of personality there is. Well, the truth is, in the context of almost any other situation, marriage is, of course, one of the most intimate one. But in the context of the church or in the workplace, if you have to rub shoulders with someone constantly, you something about them usually will eventually annoy you a little bit. And um, those at that level, there is a need for forgiveness. There is a need for accepting each other for how God made us. And learning to, to not let that resentment build. Learning to say, you know, that is who they are. I want to give place and grace for where we can challenge each other. I believe if we go back to verse 15, there's times where we can say, you know, what you do and the way you do that, I, I, it, 
it bothers me and I wish you wouldn't do it. I think that it certainly is. But what if it doesn't really change? What if this sin continues? I think depending what type, not sin, this action. I believe there's a difference there. Is there a, a willingness in your heart to love someone anyhow? To see their good in them beyond the fault that annoys you. And learning to love them despite. Love covers that multitude of sin. And then Jesus launches into this story. Verses 23 to 35. And we'll read the entire account. We don't have time to dig deep into this. But it is a neat story. Therefore is the kingdom of heaven likened unto a certain king which would take account of his servants. And when he had begun to reckon, one was brought unto him which owed him ten thousand talents. But forasmuch as he had not to pay, his Lord commanded him to be sold and his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. And the servant therefore fell down and worshipped him, saying, Lord, have patience with me and I will pay thee all. Then the Lord of that servant was moved with compassion and loosed him and forgave him the debt. But the same person, servant went out and found one of his fellow servants, which owed him a hundred pence. And he laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me what thou owest. And his fellow servant fell down on his feet and besought him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. And he would not, but went and cast him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw that was done, they were very sorry and came and told him their Lord all that was done. And when his Lord, after he had called him, said to him, Oh, thou wicked servant, I forgave thee all that debt because thou desirest me. Shouldest not thou also have compassion on thy fellow servant, even as I had pity on thee? And his Lord was wroth and delivered him unto, to the tormentors till he should pay all that was due unto him. So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you, if ye from your hearts forgive not everyone his brother their trespasses. So the story, the parable is, I think, fairly clear. We have this debtor with millions of dollars in debt. Who, who is that like? That's our debt to, to the Lord. Our compared with our sin before God is like that millions of dollars debt, unpayable amount. And our Lord is like this Lord. He's a merciful Lord. When we fall before Him in repentance and mercy, asking for mercy, He freely forgives that debt he has mercy and he frees us he lets us walk away from an insurmountable load of debt of sin free forgiven but if we like that wicked servant go out and find a brother that has committed a real trespass they have a debt it's real the dead is not imagine it's real. They did something to us, or they owe us something. And we take him by the throat and say, You I will not forgive you. Jesus said, You have nullified your forgiveness from me. And this is repeated through scriptures. It's very serious. Very, very serious what we do with forgiveness toward each other. I don't think in the in the in the my problem and your problem and all of our problem, I think, is we just don't think we really were owed that much by the Lord. We, don't, we forget the greatness of our debt to God. And when we see that small debt that's right here, it's in flesh and blood, it's you. It's just right in our face and it looks so big and it makes us so upset and we can't get over it. That part, that sin against God, it's kind of 
back there and yeah, we know it, but it's not so real. And it, we just can't get over this in our face and we demand payment. We're gonna, how do we keep people in prison today? We, um, we still imprison people. We, we're gonna punish you. We're not gonna be speak to you. We're gonna walk to the other side of the street. We're, we're gonna, not gonna invite you to my Frank Frankfurter parties because what you did to me. We're gonna somehow try to punish you for what you could do. But Jesus is offering a better way. He says, I have showed you. I was the one out in the streets, out in the wilderness looking for you. I am the one, the, the shepherd, who is offering forgiveness, looking for that lost sheep to bring you into my fold. And that was you, and I brought you into my fold. And I forgave you. I stopped the cycle of sin in your life. And I'm asking you to be like me. I'm asking you to, to bring the beauty of forgiveness into the hurts and the pains and the offenses around you. And as I thought of the circle and the cycle of sin and the cycle of bitterness, and I thought of how the, the Heavenly Father through Jesus Christ stops that cycle of sin. And then He looks down upon His children, His little ones, and He sees all these cycles of people not getting along. And it grieves Him. Because he knows the secret, the same secret of forgiveness that he extended to us is the same thing that works in our relationships. When I go to my brother or sister and say, you know, I forgive you. I release you. You do not owe me those several thousand dollars anymore. I don't want it back. I love you. You're free. You're free to go. You can come to my Frankfurter parties because you are my brother and I love you. And I'm not going to hold you in prison any longer. Because why? Because you're so special. No, you were still, well, we won't go back into the cycle again. The problem was real. But because of what Jesus has done for me, and I want to take a little bit of that forgiveness, and I'm going to extend it to you. I'm going to share it. I'm going to share it with him. And we can stop, stop it. We can stop the cycles of brokenness all around us when we embrace the beauty of forgiveness as the Heavenly Father has, has, has shown to us. So I don't know who you are this morning. Hopefully all wonderfully perfect people. And this was just a nice exercise. But let's say you're not. Maybe you have been offender this morning of the worst type and you're fearing eternal damnation that was warned against at the beginning of the trap. And there's an answer. I believe the shepherd is looking for you. You too were innocent one time. You too were a little one. And he's longing, wishing that you would turn from your sin and would for find forgiveness through Jesus Christ. Or maybe you're a victim. Maybe you have been sinned against. Maybe you are struggling with a sin that someone else led you into. Jesus is calling. He's looking. He's desiring you for you to be forgiven, to be healed from the awful effects of sin. Or are we here and we're in, a, we're in the middle of problems, problems in our homes, in our churches, or at work. Things aren't going well. We can't get along with people. That's happening. I know it's happening. It's happened to me. I know it happens right here. Jesus is saying, I've shown you the way. Are you going to offer forgiveness are you gonna oh, oh the thought i forgot earlier 
you know, sometimes you say, just forgive. And that's probably what I'm saying. Just forgive. And when you think the context of this entire chapter, when Jesus looked down on this earth, could he not have like, said, you know, Heavenly Father, let's do this. We're just going to wipe their slates clean. No matter what they do, we're just going to wipe it clean. And, and in the end, it'll all be all right. I'm not bothering to go down there. It is a messy place and they'll probably kill me and all that. We'll just take some of your abundant grace and we're going to forgive them. No, he did not do that. He came down. He went through the miserable life here on this earth. He gave of himself so that he might teach us. He might bring us into a relationship with him in a much fuller way than if he would have just extended grace freely. He, he went and gave of himself because he wanted a blood-bought people that became like him. I think sometimes forgiveness in human relationships is a little like this way too. I think if I would say, all right, you've offended me, and it would be, you know, I just forgive you. I don't want to talk to you, but we, just so you know, you're forgiven. Well, you don't really know because I'm not going to tell you, but in my heart, you're forgiven. I'm going to start trying to act nice to you. And I don't think that's what this chapter is teaching. I believe it is teaching that true human relations means that there's going to be some painful work in the process. Verse 15 says, you're going to go to that brother. You're going to work through that. And you're going to try to restore the relationship to a much deeper level than if I would just say, you know what? You're forgiven in my mind. And we're going to act like it never happened. Rather, there's that attempt to a restored relationship, to a coming and a working together in a way that actually can get along. Some things that I don't fully understand, but I see some beautiful patterns here in this chapter. Shall we... Um, rise for closing prayer and benediction.